to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good morning. Um, I am here today with Dr. Carlos Mary. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Division of Congenital Heart Surgery at Texas Children's Hospital, uh, Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Corrine Tan. I'm a second-year fellow um, also at Baylor College of Medicine. Today we'll be discussing the topic of coarctation of the aorta, which happens about 4% of congenital heart lesions. So Dr. Mary, say we have a four-day-old infant that comes in via the ED with complaints of cool lower extremities increased fussiness and tachypnea with difficulty feeding. She was found by the ED physicians to have weak distal pulses, and they call you with suspicions for coarctation of the aorta. At this point, what are you thinking in your mind in terms of differential, and what key history and physical findings are you looking for? Well, thank you very much, Corinne, for the invitation, first of all. Uh, it's a pleasure to be talking about uh, this topic with you. So obviously this, uh, this kid has features that uh, would be concerning for uh, some type of aortic quartation, uh, just based on the fact that the distal pulses are weak and the patient has cool or extremities. Although in babies, there's a lot of differential diagnosis that have to be taken into account, including obviously sepsis. Um, septic shock is important in, uh, in children, especially newborns. And uh, some other uh, features that could be um, indicative of uh, low cardiac output, like cardiomyopathies or myocarditis, although that would be unlikely this early in life. Uh, critical aortic stenosis or any uh, diseases of that type that are actually dependent on a on a patent ductus arteriosus that may close within a few days. Obviously, aortic quartation would be one of the most common ones, and that would be uh, very high on the differential. Uh, one of the things that uh, would be important would be to go obviously see the kid, talk to the family, try to get a history, uh, try to get a birth history, how the child was doing at home, has he been feeding, he or she been feeding okay. Um, uh, how's the uh, overall behavior, etc. And then uh, do a full assessment to make sure that the kid uh, is not uh, exhibiting significant signs of cardiogenic shock. So vital signs are important, how the extremities look like, is the kid on respiratory distress, does the kid need uh, acute uh, uh, intervention uh, or of impending circulatory cho- uh, shock. And then a- any other um, dysmorphisms or things that would be associated potentially with uh, with uh, signs of aortic quartation. Um, but yeah, the vital signs would be would be very important. A full assessment of the kid would be would be key at this uh, level. Sure, thank you. Um, so, what kind of labs would you be asking the ED physician for or imaging to help with the workup? Well, um, I think here is going to be very important based on the presentation and the signs that, that this kid could be going to uh, cardiogenic shock fast is to obviously get uh, established uh, intravenous access. And while we're getting all the workup, given the high uh, likelihood that this is uh, PDA-related issues or aortic quartation or critical aortic stenosis or something of those sorts, mm-hmm. uh, PGE should be ordered and uh, potentially started as we're doing all the workup. Obviously, you want labs. Uh, you want to make sure that the child's not acidotic. You want to send some cultures to rule out sepsis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may want to get establish uh, potentially arterial access and send some arterial blood gases, etc. Um, you'll get a chest X-ray. Uh, the chest X-ray will will uh, be important to see if there's any cardiomegaly indicating any other uh, pathology. Um, 
and um, uh, obviously you get an EKG, but the most uh, important thing that you're probably gonna get in this uh, child is gonna be a transthoracic echocardiogram. And uh, the echo will give you a good idea of what you're dealing with, obviously. Uh, in the case of, uh, of if this is indeed an aortic quartation, you wanna know exactly the location of the quartation, the degree of the, the stenosis and uh, kind of how much velocity gradient, et cetera, you, you can get on echo. And something that's going to be important is whether there's a PDA or not. Uh, uh, a lot of these kids, and based on the presentation that you're mentioning, it could be possible that as the PDA closed, the, the child actually developed uh, uh, the quartation, uh, an ongoing quartation, and decreased body perfusion to the lower body. So <clears throat> the status of the PDA will be, will be important. Mm. Uh, another thing that's very important, as we're going to talk about uh, later uh, during, the t during the chat, is the, the status of the aortic arch itself. Is the aortic arch hypoplastic? Is the, in particular, the proximal aortic arch because that's gonna determine uh, some of the management that you're gonna do with this patient. And then whether there's associated anomalies on echocardiogram, bicuspid aortic valve, VSDs, atrioventricular septal defects, mm -hmm. et cetera, that would also play into the, um, into the uh, mix. Uh, obviously, it'll also give you some more information about other diagnoses that maybe causing this uh, symptomatology. Sure, thank you. Um, so actually my next question uh, to you has partially been answered. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about treatment. Uh, you mentioned starting prostaglandins. Um, is there anything else um, that you know we should mention at this point or also just thinking about after confirmation of uh, the aortic coarctation diagnosis, uh, sort of timing of surgery and indications for surgery? Well, prostaglandin is obviously going to be very important, especially if this is a, a child that's presenting with aortic uh, quartation. Uh, prostaglandin is going to do two things. One is going to uh, try to open the PDA, which in a four day old uh, should be easily uh, opened by prostaglandin. And then it may, it sometimes, in some situations, even if the PDA doesn't open, it may actually relax some of the ductal tissue that may be mm -hmm. at the level of the aorta, improving the, the aortic quartation. This child has the potential to get very sick, uh, so uh, the patient should be admitted to a monitor setting, uh, likely mm -hmm. a cardiac or a pediatric intensive care unit, uh, get good access, uh, may need some inotropic support, melanone or, or, or some kind of uh, support like that, and sometimes it's uh, necessary. If the child's on impending shock, then even intubation may may help. Mm. Uh, correction of uh, acidosis. And then depending on the lab, some of these kids present with significant alteration of uh, renal function tests, and liver function tests, and and uh, trying to resuscitate them with uh, fluids, inotropes, etc. may make them a better um, candidate for surgical intervention. Mm. Now, an obvious question is when is the best timing for, for intervention? It depends a little bit on whether the patient uh, is able to turn around after some of these interventions and after starting prostaglandin. I would think that a four-day-old uh, has a very high likelihood of uh, reopening the PDA and potentially improving the status, and in that situation you can wait for a few days until all the um, uh, organ perfusion uh, markers improve, so the liver function test, the creatinine, etc., and then take him to, or her to the operating room once uh, the child's much in a more stable place. That being said, sometimes even with all the inter interventions and prostaglandins, you have a child that's still in shock and the PDA is not opening or the quartation is still significant, and then you have to uh, take the, the 
newborn emergently to the operating room for for repair. So that's going to depend a lot on on the status of the patient and on how uh, the patient responds to your medical interventions. Sure. All right, moving along, uh, let's talk a little bit about operative techniques in the OR and relevant anatomy there. Well, um, I think one of the key points when we're talking about aortic quartation is what kind of operation you're going to offer the, the patient. If you have an isolated aortic quartation, meaning that the aortic arch is normal uh, and you have just a, a narrowing at the level of the ductus, uh, which is what happens in a lot of the, in a lot of the cases, then uh, addressing the arch through a left thoracotomy is the most uh, universally used and probably the best uh, technique um, that you would use on this patient. Now. In, uh, something that's going to be very important, though, is the status of the aortic arch. Why do I say that? Because if, they, if there's a proximal aortic arch hypoplasia, you're not really going to be able to address that if you um, address the quartation through a left thoracotomy. You're just going to be moving the obstruction from the just adductal area to now the aortic arch hypoplasia. Uh, and these are cases where a median sternotomy may be necessary to address uh, the quartation and the, and the aortic arch hypoplasia. At the end of the day, what you want with the operation that you're going to be offering this child is to relieve all aortic arch obstruction. Now, how do you define aortic arch hypoplasia is a matter of debate. Um, there's no real normative z-scores, etc., for proximal arch. Uh, there are some for distal arch, so when people say, well, as in minus two z-scores on the distal arch means arch hypoplasia, well, it doesn't tell you much about the proximal arch itself. Mm -hmm. uh, some people have used 60% of the ascending aorta diameter, so if the diameter of the proximal arch is less than 60% of the diameter of the ascending aorta, that's considered arch, uh, proximal arch hypoplasia. We at Texas Children's use uh, a formula for neonates of an, an infants of weight in kilograms plus one. So if you have, let's say, a four kilogram baby, you would expect the proximal arch, which is the segment between the innominate artery and the left carotid, to be uh, four, uh, five millimeters or greater. If you have a, an arch that's five millimeters or le that's less than five millimeters, then that would be indicative of proximal arch hypoplasia. And we would probably uh, think about addressing these through the front in order to relieve that uh, degree of obstruction that would remain there. At the end of the day, if you have a patient with residual aortic arch obstruction, those are the patients that are at higher risk of uh, developing uh, recurrent arch obstruction that will need surgical or cath intervention in the future and long-term hypertension. So we are very aggressive on, on addressing these issues. Now, some of the patients will have a common brachiocephalic trunk, so they will have a very very short or absent proximal aortic arch. And in these cases, um, uh, if the distal arch is hypoplastic, then you may actually need to think about addressing them from the front because the left thoracotomy may not be able to address those, those patients uh, satisfactorily. But it is very important for the surgeon to sit down and look at the images and, and really um, see if a left thoracotomy approach will be uh, capable of addressing that. Now, the other consideration is going to be what kind of um, uh, other anomalies, intracardiac anomalies you have. So for example, if you have a perimembranous VSD that's very large, that's not going to, that's not anticipated to be closed, then you may want to address all 
uh, defects at the same time, and that's something that uh, that we usually do. Now, if you have a, a more difficult to address VSD or a complete atrioventricular septal defect, something that's actually a lot more complicated in the setting of a fo focal aortic quartation, then a better approach may actually just be to address the quartation through a left thoracotomy at this time and then come back and do a median sternotomy and a smaller procedure later in life when it would be easier to address the cardiac uh, defects. So that's obviously going to depend on the anatomy and each particular patient. Mm -hmm. So if we decide, let's say, that this patient has uh, an isolated aortic quartation, um, uh, juxtaductal aortic quartation, and the proximal aortic arch is normal or close to normal, then we would address it through a left thoracotomy. Uh, usually you uh, perform a posterior lateral thoracotomy uh, through either the third or the fourth intercostal space. Um, I find that a third intercostal space gives you a direct uh, approach to the actual arch, although it makes it a little bit more difficult to mobilize completely the descending thoracic aorta, mm -hmm. but it's a, a matter of surgeon's preference as to where exactly um, uh, the thoracotomy is performed. Something that's very important is that, that has to be discussed with the anesthesiologist to keep good blood pressures on the upper extremities throughout the entire procedure, uh, especially when, when the clamp goes on to, to uh, uh, prevent malperfusion of the spinal cord. Uh, we use NEARS, near infrared spectroscopy, routinely to make sure that when we're putting the clamps, we're not occluding the flow uh, to the brain. Um, and then we let the, the kids usually drift in temperature to 35 degrees or so uh, centigrade uh, to do a little bit of uh, spinal cord protection, which is one of the most feared, although uh, fortunately very, very rare occurrence uh, uh, the paraplegia and, and patients like this uh, when when the procedure is being performed. So after performing the posterior thoracotomy, we um, uh, displace the lung uh, anteriorly, and then we create a very long mediastinal pleural flap uh, that goes from the left subclavian down to as far down on the thoracic aorta as possible. And usually by putting some stitches on the mediastinal flap, on the anterior portion of the mediastinal flap, you can use those to retract the lung and uh, and get better better view of the aorta. Uh, something that's very important to, uh, to do in this case is to mobilize the aorta as much as possible. So you should mo mobilize the descending thoracic aorta as far down as possible, mobilizing uh, some of the intercostals and uh, branches from the descending aorta. And then mobilize the aortic arch um, also as proximal as possible, usually up to the level of around the nominate or even the ascending aorta if possible and the same uh, for the subclavian artery and the, and the uh, left carotid artery. Um, usually we don't sacrifice intercostals, usually it's not necessary to sacrifice them as long as you have good mobilization of all of them, although in some situations if they're, actually, if they're very close to the area of quartation you're going to need uh, to sacrifice them during, uh, during the repair. Um, it's also important to identify the vagus nerve and the recurrent laryngeal nerve that's going to be wrapping around the ductus arteriosus and separate them from, from your field. You dissect the PDA completely. And um, uh, usually we put in a uh, fibroprolin purse in case of newborns around the PDA to be ready to ligate it once we, uh, once we start the, uh, the uh, key portion of the procedure. Uh, we usually give 100 units of, per kilogram of heparin uh, before clamping, 
And once the anesthesiologists are ready, and uh, after two or three minutes of uh, heparin, we'll ligate the PDA, place a clamp on the aortic arch. Uh, what we find is that a castaneda-type clamp uh, works best, and you can occlude, depending on, on, on the anatomy of each particular patient, you can occlude a distal aortic arch uh, with the left subclavian uh, using the same clamp. Or in some situations, you have to go even more proximal into the proximal aortic arch, the left carotid and the left subclavian, just leaving the innominate artery open during the clamp time. And then you put a second clamp on the descending thoracic aorta. Uh, some of the intercostals that will be higher than, than, uh, than the clamp that's been placed should be controlled with some uh, silk uh, snares um, or any other method that, that the surgeon prefers. Um, and then once the... Uh, once the clamps are applied, then then you can proceed and do the do the repair. The repair, the standard of care is what we call an extended end-to-end -end anastomosis, which is resecting, uh, doing a quartectomy, so resecting the area of the of ductal tissue. And it's very important to resect all the all the ductal tissue that's on the on the aorta to prevent uh, further recurrence. And then extend an incision on the undersurface of the aortic arch and a counter incision on the posterior side of the descending uh, thoracic aorta to create a very large spatulated anastomosis. Now what I find is that putting some marking stitches before we do the clamping and the, and the division of the aorta is, is really helpful uh, just to keep your orientation while, while doing the, the, uh, the key portion of the procedure. And then uh, you just create a very long anastomosis using fine proline sutures uh, on a on a new one. We'll probably use a seven O uh, proline for this. But uh, once uh, the anastomosis is performed, you can de-air the aorta by releasing one of the intercostals or using some heparinized saline, and then take the clamps off. Um, the pr this part of the procedure shouldn't take more than twenty to twenty five minutes. So. Um, after that's done, um, we uh, we usually close the mediastinal pleura with a fine suture. We find that that helps with hemostasis and with uh, some of the lymphatic drainage that may happen from uh, small uh, lymphatics that that may have been injured during during dissection. And then uh, place a chest tube and close the close the thorax in standard fashion. Great, thank you so much. So um, does this operative technique change any in an older child or an adult that presents with coarctation? Yes, definitely. So um, on older, older children and adults don't have the same mobility that a, that a newborn or an infant will have in terms of the aorta. So doing an extended end-to-end -end anastomosis with coarctectomy is really not possible on older, on older children just because of the degree of, uh, of tension. So some of the techniques that uh, would need to be used in these patients uh, uh, are more in the sense of doing patch aortoplasties or sometimes even using interposition grafts. And that's where um, the, uh, the use of cardiac cath intervention techniques may actually end up playing a, an increasing role in these patients to, uh, given the, the, uh, the different anatomy of the patients. Something that we found very useful is to get a, a CTA preoperatively on older children, and pretty much on every old, uh, older child or adult that presents with, uh, with aortic quartation. Sometimes the anatomy is not as standard as what you would see on a newborn uh, or infant, and the echocardiogram may not provide you the entire picture 
in those uh, in those cases. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's move on and talk a little bit about post-operative management and sort of complications that you could potentially see in coaptation repair. Well, um, one of the major uh, uh, fears on, on aortic coaptation is obviously the risk of paraplegia. That risk is uh, extremely small. Actually, on one of the recent STS reports, there was no report of paraplegia. However, taking all the precautions to prevent that is obviously very, very important. Uh, there's a uh, some incidence of chylothorax, and that's the reason why being very meticulous on on uh, on the dissection and trying to control all the major lymphatics that are encountered is important. Uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy maybe uh, is relevant uh, since the recurrent laryngeal nerve is uh, is there, and sometimes just by manipulating the nerve we can cause some some paresia. Most of the times it's actually uh, uh, it recovers even if that happens within a few weeks. Uh, but uh, it can be obviously permanent. Um, some of the major things that we also have to take into account is the long-term effects of uh, aortic quartation repair. And one of the major complications would be the risk of uh, the need for reintervention, and that would be high, uh, especially when you have uh, persistent aortic arch obstruction. That's the reason why I, m I mentioned the the need to uh, to make sure that the proximal aortic arch is adequate in these patients before taking them to the operating room for a for a thoracotomy repair uh, or recurrent uh, aortic arch obstruction. In general, if you leave the operating room with a higher gradient, and we find that if it's greater than 2.5 meters per second uh, on the discharge echo, then the risk of requiring a reintervention is obviously higher. Uh, and the risk of developing hypertension, some others have noticed, in the long term also increases with, uh, with increasing uh, residual obstructions. Um, and then most of these patients will have hypertension uh, in the long term, uh, especially if you really test them and you do exercise testing, etc. So that's uh, uh, something that has to be discussed with the families in advance. Um, Usually in the post-operative management, all the patients will have some degree of hypertension that's usually uh, easily managed with, uh, with some medications, and then they usually just uh, improve on their own in a few days. Uh, it's probably just a reflex after, after surgery. Sure. Uh, so in terms of your post-op follow-up care after the patient's been discharged, um, how long do they need to be followed for, uh, frequency of uh, surveillance, and, and certainly you mentioned about the risk of recurrence, so uh, what's the protocol that we use here? So, um, I mean, the, the patients that, that will have a, a uncomplicated repair through a left thoracotomy We'll usually, we'll usually get extubated either in the operating room or uh, shortly thereafter. Obviously, if the patient presents in cardiogenic shock, that may not be the case. Um, they usually spend uh, anywhere between a day and a few days in the intensive care unit. They'll spend a few more days in the regular ward, and then they'll get discharged for an uncomplicated uh, aortic quartation repair. Um, they should probably be discharged within a week uh, from the hospital. And then we usually see them a week later. Um, obviously, different centers will have different uh, follow-up protocols. And then the patient will be followed by their cardiologist probably at a month, and then at three months, then at six months, and then probably yearly thereafter to make sure that uh, A, there's no recurrent aortic arch obstruction, and B, 
there is no hypertension or if there is hypertension that is adequately um, controlled. Dr. Mariucci, one last question before we end here. You've mentioned uh, multiple times making sure that we do not have a hypoplastic arch. So if we find that we do have a hypoplastic arch, uh, what would be different and how would you uh, take care of that? Well, obviously, as, uh, as I mentioned, you don't want to leave aortic arch uh, obstruction. So in those uh, circumstances, uh, we would prefer using a median sternotomy approach. Uh, on cardiopulmonary bypass, uh, usually we, we use antigraser over perfusion to, uh, to be able to perfuse the upper body, uh, well actually the brain, while we're, doing the, while we're doing the procedure. And to do this, we suture a graft to the nominate artery. Uh, we go on bypass, cool down the body to 18 degrees Celsius. Some people don't do full cooling if they're doing antigraser over perfusion. We, we have routinely gone down to 18 degrees Celsius. Uh, and once you're there and stopping the heart, etc., you address the arch by uh, different techniques. What we uh, prefer is uh, what we call an aortic arch advancement, which is an end-to-side anastomosis between the distal thoracic aorta and the ascending aorta or proximal aortic arch after having uh, ligated the isthmus of the aorta just past the left subclavian artery. And that basically allows the arch to have a very smooth contour into the descending aorta and at the same time uh, relieve all types of obstruction. Um, some other techniques include using patch aortoplasties. Um, the downside is that it's not an all autologous repair, which is what we would favor if we, if we can. And in reality, you can really mobilize the aorta as far down to be able to, uh, to move it up to the aortic arch without, without major problems. Uh, and there's some other techniques that use all autologous uh, material by sliding uh, the ascending aorta backwards and using the tongue of the ascending aorta to reconstruct the aortic arch uh, uh, that way. But obviously you need a longer ascending aorta for that. But there's different techniques from the front, but the important thing would be to leave no obstruction uh, at the time. Sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Mary, once again. For, um, it was uh, very helpful to have this session with you. Well, thank you, Corinne. It has been a pleasure.